This episode is supported by Bounty Kitchen, one of my absolute favorite Seattle restaurants. Bounty Kitchen is no joke, an extension of my own kitchen, except that there's so much fresh, local, organic, and tasty stuff on the menu there that it takes me forever to decide what I want. The good news is that you literally can't go wrong. Check out greens, beans, and grains dishes like the braised beef bowl, or dive into the vegan and dairy-free Marrakesh market bowl, or try one of my personal favorites for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the pot liquor bowl. There are also soups, salads, sandwiches, scrambles, and of course, toast, all infused with the deep love and commitment of founder and co-owner and my friend Meg Trainer and her team. Visit Bounty Kitchen at 7 Boston Street in Seattle's Queen Anne neighborhood and check out my interview with Meg from last season of the podcast to learn more about her personal health journey and the inspiration behind Bounty Kitchen. For me, self-care is... I would say more important than perhaps for the average person because the downside of not in, engaging in appropriate self-care is mania. It's psychosis. It's suicidal depression. So I have to be much more on my game to make sure that I get enough sleep, that I exercise. For me, it's not a choice. I have to sleep nine hours. I have to get exercise every day. Um, I have to meditate every day. So for me, it's just, it's something that must happen or else I can't be a mom and a wife and a professional. Welcome to Women on the Rise. I'm your host, Laura Dolch, and each week I talk to thriving women about the practical self-care strategies they use to fuel their success and pursue what's most important to them in their careers and lives. We get real about topics like healthy eating, exercise, sleep, stress, time management, happiness, and productivity, while busting myths about work-life balance and being perfect along the way. My goal each week is to uncover a new insight or practical strategy that you can immediately apply to your life to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. Today, I'm talking to Catherine Switz, founder and CEO of the Stability Network, a global coalition of people working together to change the narrative around mental health. She also serves as an advisor to local, national, and international mental health efforts. Prior to her work in mental health, Catherine gained business experience at McKenzie & Company and General Electric, held a variety of executive roles in the nonprofit sector, and led economic development programs across Russia, India, and Africa for major international development organizations. Catherine received an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BA from Dartmouth College. She lives with bipolar one disorder. Catherine and I grew up together in Richmond, Virginia, and we recently reconnected when we ran into each other on the street in Seattle after over 25 years of separate life paths. After learning more about Catherine's story in our high school alumni magazine, I asked her to join me for a discussion about living and thriving with a mental health condition, the importance of self-care to managing her bipolar disorder, and the tools she uses that can help us all lead more present, fulfilled, and happy lives. Enjoy the interview. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. And it's really fun to talk to you in a different capacity since we essentially grew up together. What, like a year apart? Were you a year ahead of me in school? Or was yeah, it two? Was a year ahead. I think you lived on my block for a while. I'm, I'm sure that I did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, it's so funny to have reconnected with you here in Seattle so many years later and, and also just like running into you on the street. So yes, living two blocks apart. I know. Isn't that crazy? It's totally crazy. And uh, just such different life paths in many ways, but, but also, you know, somewhat similar in the sense that you're working to help people live their best lives. And let's start there. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about your story and what led you to create the Stability Network. 
Sure. Well, I had my first psychotic break when I was at Harvard Business School um, and landed in the hospital. And when I was in the hospital, I was really searching for paths forward, trying to figure out how I could get back to health and get back to school. And my mom gave me a book uh, called The Unquiet Mind. And I think we all have books in our lives that particularly resonate. But in this book, this woman gets back to health and she goes back to a demanding career. And when I asked the doctors, you know, can I go back to school? They said, we don't know. It could go either way. And I had this book that actually told me that, yes, I could go back to school. So fast forward 15 years um, after some bumps and hiccups and a second hospitalization along the way, I really realized that I wanted to be that person, Kay Redfield Jameson, for other people and had an obligation to speak out. I had a stable career and a stable husband and really felt like people like me have to speak out so that other people can get the care they need. Um, so we created the Stability Network, which is a network of 125 professionals across 64 cities in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., and we all live with mental health conditions. We're willing to raise our hand and talk about them with our first and last name, and our goal is to change the narrative so that more people get the care they need to recover. What did you see sort of missing from the mental health conversation that you're trying to insert in there? I think it's stories of people getting better and getting back to work. And with the right self-care and the right health care, people can live very um, enriching and productive lives. And employment plays a key role in that. But I think what's missing is these signs of hope. And that's what people tell us resonates when they visit our website or come into contact with our leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know when we, when we emailed ahead of time, you were talking about how you didn't feel like maybe you had shifted the conversation quite as much as you would like. Can you talk a little bit about the progress that you feel like you have made in that and, and what results you're seeing from the, the people that you've touched so far? Yes. I mean, we touch people every day, whether they see our website or they, again, they come in contact with our leaders. And, and anecdotally, we hear that our story, our message resonates and has a big impact. And we hear anecdotally that people you know, go back to school, they take demanding jobs they might not otherwise have taken, they raise their sights. Um, and in, in terms of our own impact, we try to do evaluation surveys when we talk or when we have a intervention or an interaction to see are people's attitudes changing, are things getting better. But the the important thing to know about our model is that it's actually evidence-based. So this whole notion that if you know somebody in your immediate circle who's living with something, that's what changes the narrative. That's what changed the narrative on the gay rights movement and we believe will on the mental health movement. Um, but it just takes time. And it's we don't need 125 leaders. We mean, need 10 million leaders. Um, and we need to be in every workplace in the country. And that just takes time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about what your leaders do? Sure. Well, what they do personally and professionally are they're in the workforce. They're lawyers and doctors and corporate leaders. Um, and so that's kind of what they do personally. When they sign up to be part of the stability network, they agree to take individual action to improve lives, whether it be telling their story. Um, participating in various advocacy activities, could be giving financially to mental health causes, but they all agree to take concrete action 
um, individually. And then the whole idea is that by providing individual support to these leaders to help them be more effective, we can have, we can strengthen their individual impact, but also then have this collective impact as a platform. Our together voice is much stronger. Yeah. Well, and it also sounds like the the key piece of it is what you were saying early earlier is just the willingness to speak out about it, you know, in a in a very public sort of way, which yes. um, unfortunately with mental health conditions, as you as you obviously know, is is can be challenging. Can you talk about how you help people get over that hurdle of the stigma that does come with speaking out? Yes, well, I'd say there, there are two types of people who join the network. They're the folks who are already out and who want to join a collective platform um, and strengthen their advocacy through the training we provide. But then there are a lot of people that I'm just walking uh, along their journey with them, helping them be increasingly out. So some folks join us and they've only told their families and now we're getting them to tell friends or others. Some people are, are out personally, but not professionally and vice versa. Um, so we basically provide peer support and training to help people move along that continuum. And people are, we have lots of people who, when they joined the network, they were not out on the web or they were not out to their workplace and they are now. Mm-hmm. Why do you think there's still such a stigma? It drives me crazy. It doesn't make any sense to me that like a physical health issue, we we all are like, yeah, whatever, go to the doctor, take care of that. And yet with mental health, it's like this it's a totally different perspective. What is your What are your thoughts on that? Why Why do you think that is? I think it's scary to people because it's this sort of uncontrollable other dimension that people feel fearful of because they're afraid they could. You know, it's close enough that people are afraid of it. Whereas I think some people um, in other conditions are like, "Well, I, I definitely don't have you know cancer, or I definitely don't have this." Whereas with mental health conditions, we all have mental health. We all have ups and downs in a mental health context. Um, and I think it's just scarier because it's kind of closer to home. It's also people don't understand it. And when people don't understand things, they're afraid of things. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's funny. One of the um, women that I interviewed last season on the podcast, Dr. Sasha Hines, um, is an expert in positive psychology. And talked about the the field of positive psychology, which has been really instrumental in in um, informing coaching, is you know really developed to address what she calls the you know 70 80 percent of us which she referred to as like the walking wounded right like we we are generally well but to your point like everyone has ups and downs of mental mental health if you want to think of it that way and it's I think that's a really astute observation that yeah it just feels closer because it's and it also, I'm I'm realizing as I'm talking about it, it feels somehow more delicate or something than physical health, which is odd, really. But anyway, I think it's just harder to put your finger on, harder to understand, and then it has this sort of out of control feeling of just, um, yeah. I think I think people just fear what they don't understand, and they fear what they can't control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, and I I'm really interested in talking about different definitions of self-care because they change quite a lot depending on, you know, who you're speaking with, their age, their upbringing, their current life situation, all kinds of things. So, how does the definition of self-care change when we're talking about living and working with a mental health condition? Well, I think uh, I can speak personally just to say that for me self-care is I would say more important than perhaps for the average person because the downside of not 
engaging inappropriate self-care is mania. It's psychosis. It's suicidal depression. So I have to be much more on my game to make sure that I get enough sleep, that I exercise. For me, it's not a choice. I have to sleep nine hours. I have to get exercise every day. Um, I have to meditate every day. So for me, it's just, it's something that must happen or else I can't be a mom and a wife and a professional. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And to your point for you, it's a matter of it, it, yeah, it has to happen. And I think it's, you know, I'm glad you said that because I think even for people who aren't living with mental health conditions, it's, it's a matter of, you know, degrees, right? It's sort of like, you're not showing up in the way that you want to show up in your life. And it's perhaps more extreme in your situation. And I also think it, it shows up for everyone else too. And it's, you know, it's just, um, it's something that we don't necessarily notice unless there's this, you know, huge downside and, or we don't notice the downsides maybe as much. Well, and I think, um, I feel in some ways very lucky when I talk to my other friends who say, I can't get time for exercise or I can't sleep enough or whatever. I feel like I have this gift which is the prioritization of my health. And when I look at my values and I periodically kind of think through my values and how that manifests itself in my professional and personal life, and my first value has got to be health, even above family, because I can't be a good mom unless I'm healthy. Um, And so for me, health is absolutely first. And I, I solve around that every day. Um, and it doesn't mean it's not hard. Um, um, my mom's like, Oh, but you like to go to the exercise every day. And I say, no, I I never want to exercise, but I go because I know that's the only way to stay healthy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, and, and just continuing along that line, you mentioned sleep and exercise and meditation. What daily habits do you think most contribute to your ability to show up for your work and yourself and, and your family? Yeah. Well, I would say for the people with mental health conditions, sleep is probably the most important thing, maybe not the most important thing, but certainly one of the most important things to do. So sleeping nine hours has got to be the number one. The second thing is exercise. I just always find it helps my mood. I've just layered in meditation a couple of years ago, and that that has helped a lot more recently, but I think is less, it's very important and it's having a huge impact and I'm really appreciating it, but it's less important than sleep or exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think sleep, I always tell people like if you only get one thing sorted, you know, sleep for, for everyone, I think yeah. is truly the most important. You know, you were, you were telling me when we had breakfast a few weeks ago about a um, sort of a checklist that you had. Do you mind talking about how that works for you? Sure. So I actually have a spreadsheet that has a bunch of it. On the left-hand column, it has days of the week. So it will go from one to 31 in a given month. And then across the top, it has, you know, check marks for, did I sleep nine hours? Did I exercise? Did I meditate? And then what were my moods? Did I have anxiety? If so, then I write in a book. I have a notebook that goes with it. So I write, okay, what made me anxious that day? What was the trigger? And how can I unpack that trigger so it doesn't trigger me again? Um, so I'm, I'm every day charting exercise, sleep, moods, meditation. Uh, and I've actually recently layered in a new kind of checklist, which is much more about my personal happiness. You know, have I gone to look at a pretty view? Have I gone paddleboarding? Have I gone to yoga? So now I actually have, a, have I sat with my cats? Um, so I have the nuts and bolts of how to stay well. And then I actually have layered in this more how to be happy checklist to make sure that I'm getting in some of those fundamental aspects as well. 
Yeah, I love that. Is that is that something? I mean, you obviously talked about a, a new um, layer that you've added to that recently. But is that type of system something that you've always done, or is that something you came to later? The spreadsheet I've done for a long time. This this one that's more about happiness I've done only in the last six months. But I have added, um, and it's going to sound to your um, listeners like I have a lot, I have a lot of spreadsheets at night, but it really doesn't take much time. <laughs> I have, I do, and this is very important for me to mention, one of the keys to my health is dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, And so I have a special kind of approach to seeing every night, have I used those skills? What skills work? What skills am I still working on? Um, And then I basically take these checklists every week to a doctor who is in dialectical behavioral therapist. And she and I review all of these to see where things are going haywire okay, I didn't sleep well one night. Okay, what happened that day that could have contributed to that? How can we solve that for the future? So we look every week at these checklists and try to figure out what's going on. And I should say, this may not be obvious, so I'll say it directly, which is I take a lot of medication as well for my bipolar disorder. So that is a key part of this as well. And and we track medication going up and down as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I um, obviously have heard of, of, of dialectical behavior therapy because I'm a psychology nerd, but <laughs> I would love if you could explain um, a little bit about what that is for people who are curious and I'll, I'll put a link to some resources in the, in the show notes, but can you just give kind of an overview of what DBT is and how it works for, for folks with disorders like you? Sure. Um, it's a behavioral therapy, which basically means, and I have to say, I'm not trained in it. So I'm going to tell you Catherine's kind of layman understanding of it. But there are several behavioral therapies. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the one that people think of most. And then I do dialectical behavioral therapy. And the notion with dialectical behavioral therapy and the way it differs from cognitive is that dialectical behavioral therapy really tries to identify and validate the emotion first and foremost, whereas cognitive therapy is more looking at thought processes. Dialectical behavioral therapy is saying, you almost need to move upstream. So what's the emotion that triggers the thought? And then is that, um, does that fit the fact? So if I have a meeting and I have anxiety about how it went, one of the key questions is, okay, does the anxiety fit the facts? And I won't go into how that all works. If it fits the facts, you problem solve. So if you actually you know, said something that might have been hurtful to somebody, you do a repair and you address that. If it doesn't, as is mostly the case with me, where I'm just having kind of the free-floating post-meeting anxiety, then the question is how to do what's called opposite to emotion action, which means you don't go and apologize. You don't you know, have a... And, and you try to interrupt that feedback loop in your head that says, I said the wrong thing, I said the wrong thing. Um, so it's really about trying to validate the emotion. I'm having anxious thoughts. Okay, what's the trigger? And then how do I problem solve what to do as a result? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love I love that there are specific, there's a specific process, right? And I think that that can be useful really to anyone to examine the thoughts and emotions. And you know, we talk a lot about this on on the podcast and and in my work as well. And and um, yeah, I'll definitely put a link to to DBT resources in the show notes because I think that it's a useful framework. It's something that uh, you know has been introduced to me in therapy for you know different types of thought patterns and that sort of thing. And I, I think it's it's very helpful for a, a broad swath of, of people for sure. So I'm curious about 
support. So, you know, asking for support is a really vulnerable place for most people. You know, we all want to look like we have it all together (laughs) most of the time. When did you know it was time to ask for support around living with bipolar? And and how did you work through what were feelings that came up around that? Yes. Well, I would say what's really helped as part and just to link it to dialectical behavioral therapy. I mean, the first thing before I can ask for support um, is to know that I need it and to identify uh, and identify a need. And then the question is, how do you ask for that support? And dialectical behavioral therapy has helped me do both. So I recognize, okay, I need to do this and I need to ask for my husband to do something differently or my um, colleague I need to ask for the support I need. I need. Um, I mean, in my case, I was hospitalized with psychosis, so it was clear I needed help. It's been somewhat self-evident in that way, but I think more broadly, we all need to ask for help at different times. And I, I every day ask myself, okay, what will work for me today? And then how can I line up everything else around me? And I should mention that I'm a mom of a five-year-old and I have a husband who works and travels a lot. And so for me, every day, it's a calibration of, you know, what are the things I need to ask for for help from my whole ecosystem, my colleague, my husband, our childcare, so that I can make sure I stay healthy. It's a very delicate ecosystem, and I have to be very on top of my needs, even though they're scary sometimes to ask for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you, when, when they do feel scary to ask for, when you don't want to ask for that, what, what conversation do you have with yourself to kind of get past that? I think I think once I've identified the need, and that's the hardest point is figuring out what I need and then feeling like I have the right to ask for it. And one of DB dialectical behavioral therapy says is you can ask for anything in the world. Like there's nothing you can't ask for. And they give you a structure, a skill called Dear Man that helps you ask for it in a reinforcing constructive way. And so making sure, and, and this gets back to the self-care, because one, you want to be healthy enough that you're in touch with what you need and healthy enough to ask for what you need in a constructive way. I mean, we, it's so important in the workplace to, to ask in a way that people can hear, and it's important in a marriage and everything else. So really trying to be in that healthy place that you get to through meditation and exercise and sleep so that you can identify the need. And one, my big... Um, red flag is anytime I feel resentful in any way in my life, I know I haven't asked for what I need. So instead of that being somebody else's problem, that's my problem. I didn't, you know, on Sunday night when I'm exhausted, I didn't ask for help on Saturday morning when I needed it. And so that's really changed the dynamic in my marriage to say, wow, if I'm showing up and asking for what I need in a healthy way, the entire process goes differently. Totally. I love that. I love that realization that, yeah, that we have control over that. that and, the, and that for you, that feeling resentful is the, is the sign of, oh, wait, <laughs> I didn't ask for what I need and that's on me. I think that's really, really uh, powerful realization. Hi there, it's Lara here. Want to take a quick break from the interview to invite you to my monthly online workshop series. It's designed to help you get out of your own way and make being healthy feel easy and intuitive instead of stressful and overwhelming. And it's totally free. So consider this your personal invitation to join in. Up next tonight, Tuesday, September 18th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 p.m. Eastern is my popular Powerful Habits of Women on the Rise workshop, where you'll learn a few powerful habits to help you step into your big dream 
dreams and wake up with the power to take on your goals this fall. Visit laradolch.com slash workshops to save your spot for this and future workshops. That's laradolch.com slash workshops. Can you talk a little bit more about your meditation practice, since, especially since you recently added that? How did you go about doing that? And, and what have you noticed about how it's changed how you move through the world? Yes, I think it's two things. I mean, the first thing I would say is it wasn't easy to start. The, well, I would say two things. The first is meditation is incredibly easy. Just set a timer for two minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes and sit there. Like you're allowed to think things, you're allowed to worry, you know, you just try to bring yourself back. So when people say, I don't know how to meditate, I like just turn on a timer for two minutes and sit there. And, um, and there's no right or wrong or good or bad. If you end up obsessing about something, I promise you within six months, you'll start to have a clear path. Um, and some days it's hard and some days it's easy. You know, some days you're really in the flow and other days you're just, you're, bringing yourself back from anxious thoughts over and over. So I just encourage people to start. The other thing that's helped a lot is slowing down my life in general has helped my meditation practice and my breathing. People used to tell me, oh, you should breathe more. And I'm like, I'm going 160 miles an hour. What do you mean? But now that I've slowed down, I'm like, oh, I get what they mean. (laughs) I can breathe between emails because I'm aware of my breath and I'm aware of so slowing down in general in life helps meditation. I just feel I'm sitting in a meeting and I just have this sort of sense of calm and sense of presence. I just have been able to slow my whole cognitive process down. So if something really stressful is happening, I can sort of observe and watch and think. And somebody once said to me, meditation helps you uh, respond, not react to events. And I think that's so true. You just have this, this, calm that comes from that. And it's, I only meditate 10 minutes in the morning. That's all my life allows. And it has, even that 10 minutes has had a huge impact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I can totally relate to that, you know, being less reactive, which, you know, is something that you hear from a lot of people who meditate. And I, and it's funny too, I, you know, I'm now also very aware of, of when I'm not present. And usually when that happens, if I'm not present, like I end up hurting myself. Like the other day I went for a run and I was running stairs and I slipped, you know, it was kind of wet out for the first time in, you know, months the other morning and I slipped on the stairs and fell on my butt. And it was because I wasn't present. And, and I think, you know, for me, meditation allows me to recognize that and say, oh, okay, I got to double up on the meditation. And yeah, to your point, like 10 minutes, even five minutes. The only thing I want to make sure I come across, I, I get across in the interview is none of this is easy. Every morning yeah. I have something better to do than meditate. I want to check my email. I want to deal with something at the house. Um, I never want to work out. Um, so I don't want people to be like, oh, well, she just sort of does it and it's all seamless. Every day I have to make myself turn off the light at night. So I just want that to be conveyed as well. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you said that. And I think that that's something that it's, it's very easy to look at people who have established self-care routines and think that it is easy and that it, and it become right. The choice becomes somewhat easier over time, but it's still always a choice. I think it will always be to your point. There will always be something else that wants your attention and, um, you know, really sort of establishing those habits takes time and, and yeah, a daily choice. I love that you said that. And one other quick thing I want to say is that it builds self-esteem. Every time I choose to go for a walk instead of do something else, it, 
it, it's a chink in my self-esteem because I'm valuing myself. And I think so often maybe this is linked to self-esteem where people think I can't take time out of my family to go work out because that's, you know, something. Um, but I find that when I do take these daily steps, I'm validating and valuing myself. And that has had a big impact. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. You know, what do you, as we're sort of wrapping up a little bit here, what do you want my listeners to know about living and working with a mental health condition and, and, and also what they should do if they're struggling with workplace stigma? So my first message is that people can live well with mental health conditions across the spectrum. So if you have, if you're struggling with something or know others who are, you know, first of all, hang in there. I know it's hard and don't lower your sights. Keep, keep at what's important to you in life, whatever that is. And in terms of the second question, if you are somebody who is struggling, I would encourage you, of course, to ask for help, to get help. I, it's wonderful that you'll put some resources on your website. And if you're living with a mental health condition and you're willing to speak out about it, please visit our website, thestabilitynetwork.org and join us because we'd love to have any of your listeners um, engage in our work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what, what's next for you, Catherine? What are you excited about right now? I'm really excited about improving access and care for people with mental health conditions, particularly those living below the poverty line. That's sort of my personal mission statement that I've recently come to. And I believe it's important to reduce the stigma and prejudice and discrimination, but we've got to make sure that people can get care when they need it. Yeah. And actually, can you talk a little bit? I know we're, as I said, we're coming to a close, but now I want to hear more about that as far as um, helping people below the poverty line access mental health care. Can you talk a little bit about how you're working on that and what's working? Sure. Um, I'm involved in the Healthcare for the Homeless uh, Governing Council. So really trying to look at mental health services for the homeless population and also working more broadly in the community with providers and government officials and others trying to make sure that people have access and that the care is quality such that they can get better. Um, so I do a lot of work, both pro bono and consulting, to help the improve the system, the mental health system, um, and basically bring my business background and nonprofit background to bear on a number of community commissions and other venues. Yeah. And do you, do you think that, is there, is there, something in particular, a specific project as part of that work that you have seen be especially effective? Like, I'm just, I'm really curious about this because it's, it's such a, um, it really is a very hot and important topic right now. So I'm curious what specifically has worked as far as helping that population. Yeah. So if you're speaking about the homeless population specific, what works is getting care to where they are on the streets in the camps, making sure that they have care directly there and that the care there has the information and knowledge about their case to be effective. The problem is, you know, you can refer somebody across town, but if they don't have bus fare and they don't have the ability to get there, um, it can be tricky. So what we really need to do is make sure that care is, you know, where people are, if they're on the streets, on the streets. It's the kind of care they need, which is often multidisciplinary, Many of the folks with mental health conditions have co-occurring disorders, so we really need to make sure they have that sort of cross-functional care where and when they need it. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for that work. Because I think, you know, in many cities around the country, homelessness is a um, a hot topic and specifically in Seattle right now. And, and uh, yeah, that's why I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. But thank you so much, Catherine. This was so amazing. And I think um, hopefully is really helpful to a lot of a lot of my listeners. And uh, yeah, thank thanks you. for taking the time. Thank you very much. Have a good day. That's it for this week's episode of Women on the Rise. Visit lauridolch.com slash podcast for show notes and resources mentioned in this episode. You can download other episodes of this podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review the podcast. It's a huge help to the show and I truly appreciate it. This episode was produced by me with editing help from Dave Nelson at Lens Group Media. Tune in every week for new interviews that give you the practical tools you need to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. Oh,